This is uh, Tom, Peter, and John, and you are listening to The Brother Z. <laughs> and joining us today is our esteemed panel, Peter and John, <laughs> along with Tom. Thank you for having me on the show, Tom. Really appreciate it. Great to be back. You're yeah. welcome. Thanks for inviting me back. I thought I'd lost my podcast privileges. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a, we're going to be talking about Challenger, the final flight. And it is a documentary of the last days of the spacecraft, the Challenger. It is a Netflix original. On IMDb, it is ranking out at 7.9. Rotten Tomatoes has it at 84%. So Rotten Tomatoes, the critics tend to be the rotten folks in IMDb. That's the people's choice. Uh, just to refresh everyone's memory, this is an event that occurred on January 28, 1986 in which the Spatial Challenger exploded and um, killing all of its crew. Um, and we some of us saw this live, but it was directed by Daniel Young and Stephen Leckhart. Um, and the editors are Poppy Doss, program creators Stephen Lockhart and Glenn Zipper. Okay, specifics are out of the way, gentlemen. <laughs> nice. Excellent. So what made the space... This um takeoff unique. There was a couple there's probably a few things. We all remember very vividly. I'm sure Pete will be able to correct anything that we don't remember accurately. Yes, that was my first dig. Um <laughs> Sally Ride. Thank, was, Tom. <laughs> thank you for the uh thank you for the warning. It's certainly more than they ha- never mind. Go, go on. I'm working on being more respectful. Just that's part of my inter- my individual treatment plan. Um so we all know that uh, Sally Ride was the first female in space, but this one had an astronaut who was a female and then had a female grade school teacher from Connecticut, was it? New Hampshire. New Hampshire. Yeah, from I knew it was Come on, Tom. Okay, come on. Okay, a couple of more specifics here about the production <laughs> and the creative team. This is a Bad Robot Productions, and we all know what Bad Robot is about, right? It's about... Uh, Abrams and spending uh, cultural capital. Because <laughs> that's what, what? Abrams does. <laughs> I wouldn't pick, uh, well, certainly J.J. Abrams, but spending cultural capital. We're going to have to unpack that one later, John. Yeah, yeah. this is a J.J. Abrams uh, production. So that is his his team. And we all know that from the, the wonderfully produced and directed Rise of Skywalker was <laughs> J.J. Abrams. And what, there goes our tie-in to Star Wars. Exhibit oh, okay. Eight for J.J. Abrams spending cultural capital. <laughs> spending cultural capital. Okay, well, where does the revamp of the Star Trek run? Never mind, we're getting off exactly. track already. Exhibit okay, so, and, and gentlemen, just to start, plant the seed for further in the conversation, I have found the perfect, let's say, analog to the episode Hate Disaster, an explosion you know, monumental galactic explosion in its own right. But we return to the Challenger. Thank you. Right. So what I would like to start the conversation with is a question. Where were you when the Challenger spacecraft blew up? Gym class. So I didn't get to watch it. I got out of gym class. I'm at my locker and a friend of mine comes running off. The space shuttle blew up. And it's like, you know, time, like, hand gestures and everything, and yeah. it starts, I mean, almost immediately, you know, like, 
the jokes and stuff started. It's kind of, I don't know. But, you know, it was bad. And, and you were in what grade? Ah, uh, let's see. I, I was 12 at the time, so I don't know, 7th grade maybe? Sounds right. Yeah. 7th okay. and 8th, I remember. But, yeah. Yeah. I, I was in uh, social <clears throat> studies class. Uh, oh, so I was wow. in 12th grade, so that was my senior year. And um, one of our classmates knocked at the door and, you know, opened and told, uh, you know, as Pastor Brigger taught that, that class, um, um, uh, it said the space shuttles exploded. And he's like, no, no way. And she says, come on. So one of the other classrooms had had the television on. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I have to confess, I heard about it. And it wasn't until you know, uh, getting home that night, seeing the evening news uh or you know special special edition uh to get all the the details so yeah i was in physics class with i can't even remember the teacher's name this is the teacher whose name was edged into my brain for probably 48 years cotter he was in the military he taught all the yeah 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 mr cotter yes yeah we were watching it live so and what was weird about it is, so when you watch it in the documentary, of course, you know, with the benefit of decades gone by, you see, you recognize, hey, this is what happened. But in the moment, it was hard to really recognize right away what happened <laughs> mm-hmm. because you didn't really know, is this supposed to be happening this way? And then you realize, okay, that was not supposed to happen that way. And I think in my brain, I was thinking that, of course, they, they must have had come up with a plan for the crew, because you have to think when you have all that fluid, fluid and explosive fluid with all of that energy going that you would develop a plan for the space crew to kind of get out in a hatch that was protected. So I was in my mind thinking, well, okay, it blew up, but maybe the, maybe the crew made it. Mm-hmm. And then of course, with the benefit of time and, and just a little bit of breathing space, you realize that, you know, and they say it in the documentary that that nobody could survive that. But that ended up being my takeaway from this documentary is we get to the punchline for me right away. I'm like, why did we come up with a plan to keep people alive when you have all this fuel connected to a spaceship and going this fast? Like, wouldn't that be your number one job? Just I think um, when uh, the, the space shuttle was being developed, the NASA did make plans for... I don't know if it was like a parachute or something, because you know the the crew capsule is made out of really robust aluminum. Um, and I think there were plans to make uh, something that could uh, you know fall back yeah. to Earth safely. But um, I don't know for weight or, or technical reasons or whatnot, it was not. Which actually this kind of turned out to be a bad thing for the Challenger crew because the crew capsule is so robust that they all survived the uh, breakup of the orbiter. And exactly. They didn't die until they hit the ocean two minutes later. Like, right. okay, so they the, hit the ocean too fast and it, yeah. Like well, the fact, yeah, the fact that they, you know, in the documentary, they mentioned that they found the bodies, which yeah. means they were intact, which means they were protected in the capsule. Uh, and I can remember this is years ago now, you know, 10, 20 years, um, a discussion with, uh, I work in the aerospace industry. Uh, with uh, somebody at work who was, um, you know, told a story about uh, there's a uh, the person sitting directly behind the pilot 
has a job in the case of an emergency of putting an oxygen mask on them and that the bodies were recovered in this fashion. I haven't read that anywhere else, so I don't know. That may be <clears throat> fake news, uh, very <laughs> old fake news. Um, but, uh, yeah, you do the math on that, you know, as opposed to 9-11 and the airplanes, you know, um, let's just say bodies were not found intact in those cases. Uh, yeah. In this case, they were, which... Uh, you know, and they didn't really talk about this in the documentary. No, they didn't. But suggest that, um, you know, they, they may have, um, they may Actually, have, they may not have. Um, I, don't I read know. a book, I just read a book called, uh, Burning Blue that came out and about the Challenger. And yeah, I think it was three or four members of the Challenger crew were found with their, um, emergency oxygen on. And, you know, they, uh, they needed assistance with it because of the, you know, the bulky suits they were wearing. So, and I guess it was a thing too in the, the, um, wrongful death trials or whatnot after the Challenger that, um, it was really kind of painful for some of the family members how they had to prove that, um, you know, they were going through some, you know, trauma after the trip of the orbiter. But yeah. So they had to, yeah, they, uh, at least they, uh, yeah, they, they, there was, seems to be strong evidence they had survived the initial blast and that yeah. the parent only came when they hit, hit the water. So then there it would be. Well, I was going to say there's some switches too that, um, the pilot changed after, uh, after the breakup of the orbiter. Then, mm-hmm. you know, they're kind of, they had spring loaded covers on them and NASA did tests. To, uh, you know, they were in a different position than they normally would be during a takeoff. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, NASA did tests and found that there's no kind of force that would have enabled these switches to be turned a certain way. So, so yeah. some other failure led to their demise then. They were intact. It was just maybe, maybe the capsule hit the water. Yeah. At like 200 an hour. So, yeah. yeah. So you would have to account for that as well, right? Like if you're going to have a, and on a plan to keep people alive, it would not only be the compartment staying intact, but also a way for it to land safely. Yeah. And so all of that was a little bit, that's kind of my takeaway, like, cause in the, in the moment, that's kind of what a lot of people were, that was agonizing. I felt like at the time, what was agonizing for me is, just wondering, are they going to find the bodies? Are they going to be alive? Or, you know, what's going to happen? All of that kind of stuff. The fact that it happened in front of um, children and parents and loved ones, all of that was, was of course, horrific. Yeah. 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 So, like, where to go from here, right? I want to talk about what what felt... So when you watch a documentary, you know that you're not watching. This is this is a shot back to our historian, which is John. He's got our <laughs> here's our he's our, our a history expert here in on the panel. So yeah. history is not a scientific recounting like a bean counting session. Most of the time, history is done from the perspective of the historian, and it's done with a purpose. And and usually the historian comes with that kind of leaned or they or they tell everybody that they learned something that they uncovered as a part of putting together said product. And it was eye opening and wonderful. And a documentary is kind of the same way. Right. They don't they're not just documenting all of the facts for us to parse out the truth for ourselves. <laughs> right. Yeah. 
God. They come with an, an intention. They package it in a way to get people to watch it. But having said all of that, uh, what did you guys think about the way the story was told? And did you feel like it was done in a way that balanced integrity or facts with something that kept you interested? I thought, I thought it was put together really well. Um, I really liked the, um, you know, the archival footage. Um, you know, it was, it was interesting watching the crew during, you know, happy times. And that also is kind of, you know, haunting too, you know, seeing Kristen McCullough smiling and, you know, mm-hmm. um, so cheerful. Um, yeah. And yeah, every, yeah, every, any historical product, it's going to be the result of, uh, of a person's interaction with the materials left over from the past. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I think there were maybe a few small things that would have changed, but all in all, I thought it was, it was pretty, mm-hmm. pretty nicely done. Good visuals. You know, they told the story. And I also thought they did a good job of having some of the people who were really at fault for yeah. um, show up, um, which, you know, that's, that couldn't have been easy to get those guys on camera. Like, right. Some of the NASA guys and, uh, you know. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, those are the other victims of the, the crash of the people who put the spaceship together. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of those guys from, uh, Morton Thiokol, you know, they were, you know, horrified watching it, like, you know, watching it before the breakup of the orbiter. And, uh, you know, afterwards too, a lot of guys have struggled for years after, after that feeling responsible and wondering if there's more they could have done. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that aspect came out very well in this. Um, Mm -hmm. I had seen another documentary about the Nobel laureate and him doing that experiment with the ice water in the, right in the committee meeting when they passed around the material and showing, you know, Mm -hmm. if you, you know, submerge this or you, you cool it to this temperature, um, it, it, uh, you know, loses its elasticity. Yeah. Um, what I had not known was the backstory that Sally Ride, you know, slipping the data mm-hmm. to the general and the general very, uh, delicately, uh, suggesting this to, uh, I forget that name, uh, Richard Feynman. Richard, yeah. yeah. Feynman. Um, and, and how that, the backstory on that was, I thought, very interesting. Yeah. And how, you know, I think it's great that the truth came out. Um, and, um, you know, so we could, you know, learn from the mistakes, you know, sooner rather than later. Um, so that, that aspect I thought, you know, was pretty cool. Uh, and then, yeah, all those engineers, I mean, I know the company I worked for made, uh, bearings for the turbo pumps, which were located fairly close, some of which were located very close to where that, you know, the breach happened. So the next day, um, you know, we got a phone call, uh, asking for all the, all the records, all the, you know, cause, uh, aerospace products have back to birth record keeping. So, you know, what heat lot metal came from. Um, you know, what the, uh, the process was, it was done, what all the quality inspections were along the way. All of that is, uh, is kept, uh, back to birth. So, um, yeah, um, that's, uh, uh, you know, pretty, pretty amazing. Um, 
Can you imagine tracking all that down? Think of all the thousands and thousands of components from all the different people and contractors and I mean, yeah. I think that's I think they did a good job telling the story so that they you weren't caught into too much minutia. But it came out very clear that there were scientists, engineers, I guess engineers might be the more accurate term. There were engineers that had significant doubts in the capacity of the Challenger to continue to fly safely. Mm-hmm. And I thought they brought that out really in a way that I thought was, you got the point, right? Um, yeah. That there was a structural mechanical failure that they knew about and they were continuing the roll dice on it, which kind of led to just the question, like, what was the hurry, right? Right. <laughs> and I know on one end, the idea is, hey, we need to prove that we can do these things ti- on a timely fashion and in a reliable way because we're, we're, our goal is to get to this end point. However, for that specific flight, given the threats to safety to that spacecraft, you and I could have made a decision from a distance. And it kind of highlights a, a, a problem that I find, and I want to see if you guys will, how you guys feel about tossing this idea around. The closer you get and the more expertise you think you have about a particular subject, you will talk yourself into almost any decision. And it just depends on, number one, what is pushing and driving and motivating everybody in the room um, sometimes it's about money and funding sources. Sometimes it's about somebody's ego and authority. Sometimes it's about, it feels like it starts to be about all the things that are not about the actual thing that you're doing. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And who, I, I wanted to say this. Well, I'll do this for, I, you guys, I was in the middle of a question, but I, I just interrupted my own thinking with, I should probably read the names of the, of the space shuttle. Uh, occupants really quick, just to be respectful. So we have Francis R. Scobie, the commander. We have Michael J. Smith, the pilot. Ronald McNair, the mission specialist. Ellison Anazuka, the mission specialist. Judith Resnick, mission specialist. Gregory Jarvis, payload specialist. And Krista McAuliffe, payload specialist and teacher. Those were the, that was the crew. What do you guys think? I mean, sometimes I feel like uh, the more you talk about something, the farther away you get away from the essence of what truly the decision should be about. Yeah. Well, I think it's hard because, I mean, reality is complex, and it's hard to know what to do. I mean, it's hard to know sometimes, you know, in low-stakes decisions what to do. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think of all the different variables with the shuttle. Um, I think after the fact, it seems like NASA was rushing things, and it feels like someone should have put the brakes on. But I don't know. It would be interesting to go back to, you know, January 27th and see, yeah. you know, you know, try and examine from, from then. And I don't think it would be quite as clear, but... Uh, you know, to your point, John, and even, Tom, your question and some of your comments after, to me, I look at this from an institutional standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as a consultant and the, the, uh, danger posed by the, um, the failure of the seals seemed, seemed to have been insufficiently socialized. So you ask yourself, uh, in other words, uh, so when they, when they, 
you know, sort of when Thiokol said, no, we, we do not, uh, certify this at this temperature. Um, you know, this was unknown, uh, upstairs. So you ask yourself, how, um, you know, what should have happened? Um, and, you know, a lot of, uh, aerospace, um, processes and especially safety is sort of, you know, categorized by criticality. And, uh, so that there's a, you know, there's certain things hit a criticality threshold. Um, it's a no go and, and everybody knows it. So it, it seems to me that the, um, you know, kind of look at, you know, how could you prevent that? Um, that either, you know, there, there wasn't a threshold that wasn't sufficiently established so that when Thiokol raised the flag, um, you know, it, it could be questioned. It could be pushed back on. Um, and, you know, whether the, um, you know, studies need to be further along, whether, uh, it, you know, it, you, from a, you know, air safety or transportation safety standpoint, that's how you would look at it. And, um, so mm-hmm. then you have the context. And this is one thing about these documentaries is great. At the time, living through it, you kind of knew it and you, you were there, but there was more going on. Now, for me, the context of, you know, basically, yeah, the program had been sold to the taxpayers as, you know, we're going to have regular flights to space. Uh, and so we kind of needed to make good on the, on the transaction. Um, you know, being a big driver at NASA and certainly program office level. So, uh, then you have this technical thing because you still are. You know, like, um, uh, you know, the pilot told Chris McAuliffe and the other, one of the other, you know, uh, payload specialists, look, this is a test vehicle. <laughs> this right. is not, you know, this yeah. is not a commercial airliner. This is a test vehicle. And, um, so, you know, everything known that can be done is being done, but there's a lot of unknowns and we are, you know, fundamentally, uh, doing something and in an environment and in a fashion that involves things that, um, you know, are non-standard and, you know, lethal to humans. So, yeah. um, so that, that's my first, you know, thought, uh, in response to your question is at the least it was the, 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 uh, magnitude of the consequences were insufficiently socialized. Whether that was because, you know, people kind of didn't want to hear it. Um, or, um, you know, don't know. Um, uh, you know, I didn't get that sense from the documentary that there was sort of, you know, people stopping up the ears, but, um, yeah. I wonder, I wonder how, um, information like that would, I mean, cause when you think about it, I mean, it seems like a really small part, you know, like a quarter inch thick rubber O-ring, you know, like, how does a doubt about that get through the different strata of, you know, bureaucracy involved? You know what I mean? Like, even yeah. at Morgan yeah. they you know, the, the engineers had to get to a certain level. And I don't know that, you know, the upper crust of NASA heard about that, did they, about the O-ring problem. You know, I'm going to speak to Pete's point, and it's also piggybacking on what you just said, John. So, like, one thing, I've been involved in organizations 
obviously, I'll state the obvious and work my way towards <laughs> greater minutia, but obviously much smaller scale. And when you talk about this idea of socializing, it's the idea of connecting administration with your middle communicators and, and supervisors and managers down to the people that are working on the actual structural part of the decision. And all that has to be connected. And there needs to be a level of support and respect given to the individuals that have specific information about what can fail. And sometimes some of the language that I've heard is what is our exposure on this? What is the significance of the exposure? <laughs> um, <laughs> what are some of the most, um, and those are important things to categorize, right? Um, uh, my experience with that has to do with funding from the federal government and me and a group of people who really knew the law really well were really tied in and supported well by the managers, the chief operating officer, the executive director. And so they would literally ask our group, which consisted of three of us, what do we need to do? And they would, they would really support it. Now you don't get that sense here. And I think some of the problem here is that you need to, when you decide to do something big, you do need to find a way to operationalize or your socialization of everything so everybody yeah. knows, right? Like You're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. Like if the engineers say there's a critical thing, it sets a flag, okay? It's not just to be noted. Like documentation, you don't want to do everything just to cover your own rear end. You'll still make a lot of really bad decisions. But really, you're you're pointing to the people that would know. In in this documentary, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong. I felt like the engineers felt like they knew this was going to happen mm-hmm. because they they saw they saw evidence that there had been failures of the O-rings in previous launches. It's just that yeah. two layers of the O-rings hadn't failed. Right. Right. Although in, this, in one case, the first had failed completely, and the second was damaged. Um, and I believe in the documentary, they did show that this was part of post-flight briefings, you know, kind of status briefings, you know, after the fact. that So this was, you know, say, known within NASA. But, you know, NASA is an organization of, you know, what, 250,000 people. So okay. if one person knows within NASA, that doesn't mean that NASA knows. Right. Okay. And right. the question is, you know, yeah. who knows? Right. And, and to your point, Tom, the characterization, uh, of the information, um, that, hey guys, we have a potential problem here. Cause normally if you identify something like that, that's a potential showstopper, you would have a, a team on that right away to at least assess, uh, like you said, uh, assess the impact, potential impact. Right. Um, uh, at the very least. Um, and, uh, if you, you know, if it's kind of hits that criticality threshold, you'd be looking for answers pretty quick. Um, yeah. And th- there's something so. you learn with some of these important decisions and it sounds really vague, but it's actually a really reliable idea. If something looks like it's going to be a problem, it will be a problem. Like, uh, and I know that sounds too vague to be operationalized very far, but it actually isn't. <laughs> Like, yeah. Like you it's, saw that 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 was going to be a problem because yeah. it in in the previous what was it nine flights for twenty yeah, this not, is the twenty fifth 
flight. Okay. Um, they, it was, they had noted it. So yep. it's no longer whether it, you know, it's going to be a problem. So now yep. what's your level of exposure? So if these things, what could go wrong if these always fail? Yeah. Cause they will. Yeah. I don't think that piece of it was a mystery. <laughs> right. Uh, I so don't now, think it was a mystery. Uh, so that and, leaves, that leaves you with another variable though, right? <laughs> That's what I'm getting at here. Like, yeah. Usually, if you're studying data, and Pete, maybe you're a big data guy, um, so you can test my logic on this, but if you're looking at two variables, <laughs> you know, you have your independent and dependent variables. If you're testing these variables, and you know, because the evidence shows it, that if these fail, it's going to be catastrophic. Yeah. So some other data point was ruling the decision. Then. Yeah. Well, right? I think, you know, well, in, in the documentary, and I don't think, you know, first of all, I think Malloy was very big for a appearing in this documentary period at yes, all. Absolutely. Secondly, you know, kudos to him for you know his his admission on camera saying, yeah, you know, I I feel like I was at a fault, and yes, that yeah. you can just um you can just see the pain. Um, absolutely. Yeah. There's a whole journey behind those words, you know, for him personally, uh, yeah. which, and you, to your point, John, is not something you usually see. You don't usually see, um, mm-hmm. you know, the folks who, you know, kind of, uh, you know, the subject of the lawsuit talking about it even years later. Um, I, I agree. So 100%. very big on him. But, you know, he... You know, again, in the documentary, it said, you know, he looked at it and he said he didn't feel like the temperature data explained what was happening. Um, but it's still just, again, I'm kind of playing this out loud. I guess it's still, again, from a flight safety standpoint, drives. Well, given that the magnitude of impact here is high, um, <clears throat> you know, we ought to, we ought to find out what is pretty quickly. Um, uh, and again, this is how, you know, this is how crap happens, right? Um, you know, you look at the, um, uh, what was it? The, um, uh, blowout preventer failure and sorry, um, the, uh, Arco, uh, Atlantic Richfield, uh, Piper Alpha, um, oil rig in the North Sea that had, you know, the explosion and killed many of the workers. And everything, and it's it's multiple systemic failures add up at the wrong time, right? And, and you know things things go wrong, um, and you know here again these systems, both the mechanical systems, but also just as complex the human system for right. you know how we do the safety, how we uh, you know how we do the business um, is just as important in these cases um you know something near and dear to my heart right now you know the max grounding and two max crashes um uh, 737 max well you know basically having the uh you know what happened was the um the uh, system uh just blanked on the uh acronym that it's referred to by mm-hmm. um you know the avionics system uh, it's only supposed to trim, uh, you know, the, the flight controls so much because it only relies on one sensor. 
In fact, it was able to trim much more than that, which basically means you violated a criticality threshold. And, you know, in the design, you know, these are, these things are written down and it's not, it's not like, well, you know, we take a vote and we, you know, we think this is critical and this isn't. Right. You know, the stuff I've seen in aerospace, no, it is defined with numbers. Okay. okay. And if you wanted, you needed to have two, two sensors. Um, and, you know, what happened in, in both cases was you had one sensor and it, um, it didn't work properly. So, um, so that, you know, that's the kind of thing that should trigger, you know, a, a threshold and a review that says, okay, we got to put a, put a second sensor on there, which is, of course, now what happened. But, you know, with the redesign, uh, which has been certificated, but, you know, these things, uh, very, very complex. Um, and the, the human interaction, you know, the, the, the process piece of this, uh, the information process pieces. You know, uh, kind of equally complex <laughs> as the, right. you know, as the machine that is um, doing this. You know. Yeah, and so, they kind of do a new thing too, so it's hard to know. But wouldn't you say, like, it's hard to know exactly? Yeah, you're you know, you're, you're dealing with unknowns. Yeah, you don't know like until a, you know. It's like uh, the De Havilland uh, jets, and was it in the fifties? Yeah, where, the uh, comet. It yeah. failed because uh, the instead of uh, drilling a hole and then putting in a rivet, they were punching rivets, rivets through metal, which created, you know, little stress points that after you know the expansion and contraction and whatnot and other sciencey things that Peter probably knows better than <laughs> me, because uh, critical failures causing the airplanes to break up, like in flight. Yeah, yeah essentially, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah it, it allows us, you know. Initiation, crack initiation and crack propagation are a big thing in, in aerospace. Um, and you do all kinds of things right down to, you know, material handling. So in our factory, I worked in a bearing factory or at one and the, you know, bearings made up of three rings, an inner and outer and then a retainer and then rolling elements. So four things. Um, but three rings and these rings are transported in slots. So every ring has its own in a plastic, uh, you know, you have these plastic baffles that separate because you don't want parts tapping each other because mm-hmm. that can <clears throat> become a crack initiation point. And that's how careful, uh, you know, right down to, uh, you know, I can remember our orientation where we uh, oriented new employees. We had the material handling guy in there. This is an eight hour you know, session, you know, onboarding new hires. And one of those eight hours was spent talking about material handling. So that's how important it was. They got the briefing on that the first day. So it's interesting with this documentary is what I found. They didn't just talk about the, the failure of the, the engineering and functional aspects of the spacecraft. They brought in some stories about, like culturally at the time, how NASA was making efforts to diversify, and that was a, definitely a big part of of the crew. I think three of the how many members? I think seven members of the crew were not part of the dominant group. Um, and I think the narrative in the country at that time was really progressing in its own way for where society was at that time okay so yeah be very careful there because i know that 
we're really don't seem all that advanced now. In 2021, I'm certainly not going to advocate that in 1986 Why? we were. Yeah. Um, Why such a careful choice of words? I know, right? Uh, <laughs> but yeah, careful, carefulness. It's from but, a assessment and uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and, yeah, exposure yeah, no, and no, risk uh, and not to talk well. in circles here, but no. Um, but thinking about the human element, what did you guys think of that element of the documentary? Basically, transitioning over to the characters, and these were real life characters that we got to know in these four or five episodes. And what did you guys think about how the documentary handled that character development? Do you want to go, Peter? Should I start? Um, you can, I mean, uh, do, you, do you have a lot to say? In which case, I'll say my little piece now, and you can fill the room with your erudition, which is <laughs> in all likelihood exceeds mine. So uh, I don't know. I can always fill a room, but I usually can't fill it with uh, erudition. <laughs> fill it with a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. No, I thought I thought that context was very um again um useful and you know you know was it portrayed well or could have been re- portrayed better you know i yeah i'm not sure i've got an answer to that question right right this moment um, okay. um but okay. certainly the fact that that was an explicit objective uh you know of the many of the program you know, I think that's that's testament to, you know, a um, you know, just a good thing. Um, I guess I, I guess I, uh, you know, I was pleased to to hear that and see that. Um, but you know, other folks may look on that very differently. Um, mm-hmm. so, John, yeah, yeah I think that's great because you know, human beings make history, and you know, sometimes I think when you look at a famous event like this and those names uh, they almost seem like characters mm. from a movie and you know that somebody scripted and you, know, you forget sometimes that they're actually human beings you know like how Krista McCullough uh, met her husband in high school and you know married she married her high school sweetheart you know mm. That's, um, yeah and you know there's in the book that I read recently too it talked about how her daughter didn't want or her daughter is quite little at the time and uh just didn't want her mom to be part of the space shuttle mission. And uh you know yeah making, you know characters like this from from history come alive and you know so we can relate to them as humans, I think is, you know, probably the most important part of the documentary mm-hmm. uh, for me. So. Yeah. I agree. I think what a lot of times the like the important elements of <coughs> excuse me of uh, supporting human beings gets lost in some of the narratives when it gets so combative. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this documentary helps to go back to this very simple idea that if we can find human beings that are committed to these types of tasks and have special skills to be able to perform these tasks, then it, regardless of background, those are the people that we want in those positions, right? 
Yeah. We don't want other things, whether it's systemic or otherwise, to be ruling that roost. And I thought this was a way of showing, because these individuals, I know it goes without saying, but these individuals came across to me, and I'm talking about the crew members and the scientists involved, as highly intelligent. Um, the ones that didn't seem we've already touched on is the decision makers. They didn't always come across that intelligent. Um, but the engineers did. Um, the crew members did. And to me, I think that gets to the central, kind of a central idea that if we could hold on to it is just, it's not about somebody versus somebody else. It's actually just being able to support somebody who's really good at something and has a, a very strong drive to bring to the table a way that they can benefit, um, whether it's NASA, science, or whatever else. And why can't we just support them? Right. <laughs> right. right. Well, I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, to build on that, well, the interaction is critical. Yeah. And, you know, we, we identified that as sort of a key contributing factor. Um, okay. To this. Um, and, you know, kind of referring to maybe some of the, uh, I, I won't, I won't, um, it doesn't feel like dialogue. I, I don't like using that word because it doesn't feel like dialogue. It mm-hmm. feels like, um, unwritten expectation. Um, and I, you know, what I've continually asked myself in the last, you know, year or year and a quarter is where's the dialogue? And okay. where are the people leading the dialogue? Um, they're out there throwing spitballs with everybody else. So as far as I'm concerned, there's certain elements in our society who are failing us constitutionally and institutionally. Um, and uh, it is testament to your point. Well, I'll tell the story um, uh, that I heard in a class I had on participative management. Uh, the most successful commando unit in the U.S. military in War II, um, always did their debriefs together, entire team, talk privates all the way up to, you know, officers. And, you know, everybody shared, everybody, you know, had, uh, everybody's, every viewpoint was valid. And so they kind of processed the, the post-game, you know, together. Uh, and they also developed the mission plan together. And then when it came to executing the plan, they kind of assumed their hierarchical roles. And what you had there, um, uh, you know, and the success came out of that because there weren't impediments to knowledge um, and how to how to treat, you know, handle things. And um, when it came time to, you know, the, the planning, everybody knew the plan. So, you know, uh, you know, the saying goes, I mean, every plan is, you know, Go, goes awry as soon as, you know, it, in, you know, uh, encounters reality, you know, every plan goes out the window. But, um, you can adapt because you know, you know, you did the analysis together. And I think that's something I would look for more broadly in our society today. Yeah. We seem to have, um, elites who wish to condemn and elites who wish to g- deny and what we really need is the interaction and sort of uh, honest uh, analysis together um, just like this you know disaster illustrates is if things things go bad 
either through ignorance uh, or through you know in you know incomplete knowledge uh, or uh, misaligned priorities, and we can fix that. You know, we can fix that. Yeah, uh, but we're yeah. not. <laughs> right, sorry. we're not. I love I love the way you said that because it highlights something in the documentary that hit me as I was watching it. You have so that the space shuttle was supposed to take off the day before, and they delayed it for reasons that I can't remember. Yeah, and then they started it. Then they flew the next day, and it hit. It just struck me as you watch these individuals going into the spacecraft that they are relying on other people to make good decisions to keep them alive. Hmm. Now, yeah. if you would have had the crew involved in the planning. Would they say, hey, oh, you know, forget the O-ring stress. <laughs> right. The O-ring, you know, you know, who cares that there's ice all over the spacecraft? Who cares that it was 22 degrees last night? Who cares that the engineers are not going to certify this product for this temperature? <laughs> right? Well, like, Right. Well, yeah, it's funny, too, how, yeah, if they, they would have launched the day they're supposed to. It was, yeah. you know, warm and... You know, I think they didn't launch because of the rain, which was a you know fairly theoretical problem, but also because the ratings wouldn't have been as good for the uh, um, the launch, I believe. Or was there, there lightning was... involved too, or no? I, I think that was the prospect of rain, um, and right. they they couldn't they didn't have visibility to an adequate window, uh-huh. and so they kept you know they delayed it and wound, it wound up in retrospect being the perfect day to have to right. Film it. They knew, and you know, the meteorologists knew that there was a major cold front coming, too. So that, and you know, I wonder why that didn't play into more. But it's kind of funny when you—not funny, but it's um something to think about. All the chance involved, or, or the way things could have gone differently at so many different junctures with this. You know, they could have launched that Sunday afternoon and probably been okay. <laughs> you know, right. The yeah. next day they could have launched too, and uh, that bolt. That they couldn't cut because of the, um, you know, the the battery powered tools wouldn't work, and they had to, you know, use a hacksaw to cut some bolt that wasn't working. That's um, right, yeah. So that that delayed it another day, and then the cold front comes through, you know, which pretty well doomed the, the craft. But then, even during the the launch, when the those uh, solid rocket boosters first fired, you can see that there's a breakthrough fire, and then something like I don't. Know, I don't remember if something welded it shut or you know, a piece of material, um, you know, got in there. But then it stops for, you know, what, a, a minute or you know, almost a minute. And then um, when they were, when the shuttle got up to max Q or the, you know, the maximum stress, whatever was, uh, you know, that well, the weld or whatever that happened in the, the rocket booster, got jarred loose. So, you know, three seconds later, it broke through the uh, external fuel tank and, you know, the yeah. this history, but, you know, you know, they hit, I think they hit, uh, you know, some pretty intense wind shears as they were kind of expected to, but, you know, that if they hadn't yeah. hit right then, the, you know, take off the... Right. Yeah. 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 So, I don't know, things could have been different and, I don't know, and, uh, well, it's yeah. So, you think of poor, poor, you think of poor Greg Jarvis too, because he had gotten bumped from one or two other missions. Yeah, two others. 
Yeah. And then yeah. he again yeah, ends up on yeah, a challenger. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty pretty amazing. Like how much how many variables go into to a situation like this. So I wanted to ask you guys too, and you can't help but think about this when you're when you think about a documentary that has to do with a spaceship of the idea of the visuals and kind of the visual aesthetic, uh, the cinematography, the capturing of old footage. What did you guys think of the visual aspects of this documentary? Well, I loved it. I love the, the, um, archival footage. I love the, like the, you know, low saturation of the eighties, uh, technology. Right. Um, Yeah. And then, which is kind of crazy because that's, you know, (laughs) You know, in the eighties, you already had some you know, really decent film stocks that could capture, you know, vivid colors and whatnot. So you end up with, well, you know, kind of grainy VHS quality, um, video footage and then some really beautiful still photos of the Challenger. Um, yeah. Both, but. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that, John. I, I, in, uh, one point in my career, um, the head of our engineering was a guy from the UK uh, and, uh, who, you know, they decried because, uh, Europe has a different, uh, uh, video standard than the U.S. did. U.S. is called NTSC. And, uh, he joked that, uh, NTSC stands for not true sound or color. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you definitely get that, that feeling of age that you remember when we were watching this stuff from the sixties, you know, and just how, yeah. you know, the blue was kind of pasty and faded and, you know, and, uh, yeah, it, it is kind of, uh, yeah, like you said, not funny, curious, uh, that, you know, here we are looking back and saying, yeah, well, seemed kind of vivid at the time, but, uh, you know, like, right. that, that's not 4K, you know, right. like, that ain't right. HD, you know. So, yeah, no, I like that. Uh, it sort of, you know, obviously contributes to the, the style, um, you know, kind of retro and then even the reenactments, um, you know, with, you know, similar style, reminiscent of, you know, reenactments we saw in the 60s. So we were growing up in the 80s. So it is kind of interesting to see that, and especially to, you know, because you remember these, you know, thing, you know, Kennedy assassinations, the Bruder film, you know, things that were caught on film from, you know, War II and, you know, before we were born. And, and that now it seems like more and more of these things, oh, yeah, I remember that, or, you know, because, like, <laughs> Uh, that's right. the, that's the downside of experience is uh yeah we you know we were at least alive when it happened and uh has some memory um now that was pretty cool you know and this reminded me of another documentary that came out uh I saw it on the airplane back when you know people and I was flying everywhere before the covid uh on it was a new documentary on the Apollo program mm-hmm. but it was compiled com- entirely from you know, newsreel footage, news programs, and uh, NASA recordings. And uh, in that, um, they have uh, the audio recordings on um, the um, uh, Apollo 1 uh, disaster. And, um, I, you know, there I don't know if there was more audio. They didn't play it. But I'll tell you, it's eerie. Mm-hmm. So what happened, there were communications problems between the spacecraft like mission control and another building, uh, like the engineering. So, um, you know, and one of the astronauts comments, you know, if we can't talk 
you know, among ourselves, you know, three buildings on the ground. How are we going to do this in space? Um, but basically, you know, the fire starts and, uh, you know, one of them is like, hey, we got a bad fire here. You know, it's like, yeah, I mean, it, it's eerie. Um, and, you know, it's the still footage it's showing is, you know, black and white, um, you know, film of the, you know, uh, of the spacecraft on the launch pad. So, um, that is a worthwhile documentary if you're, that's a great name of it. Um, I don't. I don't. I could, uh, refer this to the research team. Yeah. You well, the, the, the brothers, the, um, research team will have to take that on because, uh, yeah. yeah. We'll have the staff of thousands. <laughs> A staff comparable to that of NASA. <laughs> yeah. Researching this right away. But it was, yeah. it was very good for the, um, you know, for the source footage. Um, uh, you know, just kind of piecing together the story purely from, you know, kind of the, you know, the reality, you know, no voiceovers, no, no other. It's just everything is, uh, you know, the, the raw, the raw footage, raw recording. So, uh, yeah, definitely yeah. brought back, uh, emotions and memories when, when they first, especially the way it opens and they show the challenger taking off and they show the event and then, as the documentary kind of unfolds, you see the family members and loved ones, and that kind of hit me a lot. And I also think they did a good job capturing kind of what it felt like to be in that time, alive in that time period by some of the things that they're capturing, just kind of a, like in society. I thought that was really nicely played and visualized. Um, Anything else I would like to say? A lot of times when we're reviewing a comic book, we would talk about our favorite panel. <laughs> yeah. And maybe a nice way to put a, a bookend on this would be maybe what was your favorite uh, thing about this? Um, and would you recommend this to somebody else? Yeah, I would definitely recommend to someone else. Which you did. Um, yeah. Um <laughs> The, the two panels, I'm going to say, yeah. so panel number two, second, uh, second place was Sally Ride passing the, um, O-ring temperature data to the general. Mm-hmm. Um, the first is got to be, you know, Malloy's statement, um, you know, kind of favorite frame. Um, so yeah, because we should have issued a spoiler alert at the beginning that, you know, we'll, we'll record that at the end. Yeah. Um, but that's, <laughs> That is um, uh, of many touching points in the documentary. Um, those are probably the apex of the pyramid for me. Yeah, yeah. That Malloy, that to me is like chill-inducing. Even to think of the way that he was lit and how they, you know, the the lighting on the scene was uh, incredible. Um, you know, one of my favorites was oddly enough some archival footage of. Um, Judith Resnick being, uh, interviewed by Tom Brokaw. Cause mm-hmm. I mean, she's, I mean, she's adorable, cute as a button. And, um, and she's also extremely brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think she's still the only astronaut ever to, um, she, in the, sometime in the early seventies, published a paper in the journal of ophthalmology or something like that. Oh. You know, uh, you know, she's you know, a brilliant woman. And he asks her something about, 
what do you tell guys when you're on a date? What do you tell them that you do? I said, here's somebody who, you know, yeah, yeah, she's adorable, but she's, you know, brilliant. She's got, you know, more education and, you know, more potential <laughs> than you, Tom Brokaw. And you ask her about her dating life, you know? That's got to be a little bit, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thinking he's being, being something clever, but actually stepping into it at the same yeah. time. Um, I think probably for me was just showing the families. I think it was a reminder. Um, and then I like the sciencey, sciencey, sciencey stuff of it. I like that aspect of it. I don't know if I'll point to a particular panel, but I, I do remember, recall, hopefully accurately, where they showed the, what it, the visual of those O-rings failing in previous flights. And then they showed when they were testing those boosters and just how much force. Mm -hmm. And then it kind of connected with what we were talking about earlier in this conversation. Like it kind of welded back together, but then when it went to max and you're like, well, of course it didn't hold because we recall earlier in the, in the, in the documentary, just how much force went into those rockets when it went to max. Mm -hmm. So stuff like the sciencey science stuff of it, I think is all just really interesting. Um, I think that's it for this review of, of this documentary, unless you guys have anything else you wanted to add. Anything you wanted to add to the discussion before we transitioned? I think for me, yeah. any addition would risk detracting from the beauty <laughs> that has been created uh, quite impromptu. Yeah, I totally <laughs> Not agree. to be self-congratulatory either. <laughs> I do <Sorry>. agree. <laughs>